0: And so the seatback. this isn't a bait and switch, okay? You can put these notes online if you want to. I'm not looking for you to fill out that response card. If you want to, feel free. But there's a notes section on there and a pin for you. It should be right in that seatback. I want to encourage you to go ahead and get that out now and start taking notes. So when we get to that practical application, you can start implementing it tomorrow. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. All right, as I said, we're currently in this series called Less Sweet Turns, written on the back, written on the front of this card. Rather, and I got to be quick about this because I don't have a ton of time, and so in short, Israel has been turning to God and turning from God, and we've been exploring what happens whenever we turn to God and we turn from God, hence, lest we turn from the Lord? What will our life look like? What will things look like for us? And so to sum it all up for you, basically a year's worth of stuff, we're we're moving into where Israel has wanted a king who looks like, I'm sorry, so they could look like the rest of the nation. They didn't want a king that would lead them to godliness or lead them to look like Yahweh, which is the God that we serve. His name is Yahweh. And rather, they wanted a king that would make them look like the nations they wanted a king that would fight their battles for them and that is exactly what they get they get a guy by the name of Saul king Saul who they think they have anointed but ultimately god has anointed him king to discipline israel and they get a king then that did not want to be a king if you remember from a few weeks ago he was hiding out in baggage right they're trying to like bring him in to anoint him and he's over there Hidden from people. He didn't even want to be the king. He was terrified, hiding in the beginning. He did not submit to God, but rather he submits to Israel time and time and time again. All King Saul cares about is how other people view him. And so, what they get ultimately, as we're going to see today, is this king of presumption, as I've called it a king of presumption. And what that means in a presumption is whenever you make an assumption, but without having any facts. You kind of have this, maybe this one visible fact in front of you, and then you begin to make a a large amount of assumptions, one after another, based off that initial fact. Let me kind of share, let me, uh, I got a few ways to illustrate this for you. One is this, you're innocent until proven what? Guilty. Guilty. Okay, so you're innocent until proven guilty. So the presumption is when you meet someone, they are innocent. Rarely, unless you're a hardcore skeptic, right? Rarely do you ever meet someone and immediately think they're guilty of something, So the the default there is we interact with someone, I meet someone, and then I presume that they are innocent, and so then I act accordingly. Does that make sense? If that doesn't make sense, let me give you another one that will most certainly hit home for you. You get an Apple update or a Google update on your phone all the time, and without reading it, you click what? Accept all. Agree, 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 accept all. The presumption is... Things have went well so far, no one's stolen my identity yet, unless that's happened to you, sorry. No one's stolen my identity yet, Apple hasn't done anything crazy, I mean, they just have my fingerprint, my facial recognition, no big deal, right? They agree, 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 right? And you, the presumption is things go pretty well, so you have stopped, for the, if I had to guess, the majority of you, with the exception of Mark Jefferson, of course, stopped reading the contracts. None of you read the contracts, am I right or wrong? I'm right. Okay. You think about this. Whenever you're playing a game on your phone and that game ends for whatever reason, they give you that little ad, right? Your presumption is that they're going to put an X in the top right hand corner of your screen. So you click that, but they know that, so they flip that X on you, and now it opens up the App Store, and you start downloading a game that you didn't even want, right? Marketers play to your presumption. You kind of have this factual evidence in front of you. You make an assumption before you know anything else, and that leads to multiple assumptions. Does that make sense? Okay, King Saul today in the text. This is in, I've never thought about this before. King Saul in the text is found guilty for the sin of presumption, presuming that he knows what God wants of him because of his title and because of his status. And it turns out what we're going to see is that if you do not spend time with God, you cannot know what He wants. If you don't spend time with the Lord, you cannot know what He expects. Of you. And so the big idea then for us, the big idea is this for all of you that are taking notes, because I asked you to take notes presence is the antidote to presumption. We need to back up a few. Presence is the antidote to presumption. Presence is how we get rid of false presumptions. So let's start with Saul's presumption. I'm going to sum up for you chapter 13 through 15, very, very briefly, as we don't have a ton of time. So Saul's presumption is what we're hitting. We see in chapter 13, what we see in chapter 13 is that Saul makes an unlawful sacrifice, okay? His presumption is that he's the king, so he can do whatever he wants. He looks out on the battlefield. He only has 3,000 Israelites that are ready to fight this battle, while there are 30,000 Philistines. Okay, they kind of showed up to the wrong fight there, didn't he? He's 3,000 men. They have 30,000 men. He makes this presumption that he's the king, and so he can make an unlawful sacrifice. He's king, though. He's not priest. And in that moment, he makes this sacrifice, stepping out of his job, his role, his description as king, and in that moment, God is done with him. He he did not get a second chance. He doesn't get a, a number two or a number three. He gets one, and he's done. He makes this unlawful sacrifice because he's most certainly not the priest. Chapter 14, Saul then makes a rash vow that almost gets his son Jonathan killed. His son Jonathan has this incredible bout of faith, him and his armor bearer, and so they like straight charge after these Philistines. They murder all these Philistines. The Israelites who were once scared of the 30,000 that they saw on the battlefield, they all get up and then they all charge after the Philistines and there's this incredible victory. The text literally says God has provided salvation for Israel. But Saul cannot bear the fact of someone else, or yeah, the fact of someone else getting the glory. And so Saul makes this rash vow. While everyone is in the heat, I'm sorry, finished with the heat of battle, the men there starving, right? They just got out of a war scenario. He says, No one will eat until I am avenged. And his son, Jonathan, comes fresh off the battlefield, and what does he do? He eats. He puts a little bit of honey in his mouth. His eyes were brightened, right? It kind of helps um, satisfy his hunger. And yet, Saul looks at his son, instead of seeing, hey, everyone would be hungry coming off the battlefield, he's like, man, I I made this vow. You deserve death. It it may more so even happen to me. He doesn't back away from that rash vow that he made. And what's interesting about that is that vow made absolutely no sense. In that moment, had he followed through with that vow, that would have been the end of his bloodline. No more kingship, no more family, no more authority in Israel. That's going to happen anyway, as we're going to see. But he would have brought it upon himself in that moment instead of God bringing it later. Finally, then we see this last thing that Saul does. And here's what I had Kelly put in there, chapter 15. Saul does all sorts of bad things. He just does all of it. Like, if you can do it wrong as a king, this cat figured it out, okay? He does all sorts of bad things. And so we're kind of sum it up like this. God gives Saul a very clear command, go kill the Amalekites. He said, God said, utterly destroy the Amalekites. And so who are the Amalekites? So if you would have remembered with me from way back when we first started this series back in January, okay, I'm sure you remember all those sermons, like fresh, right, just right off the top of your dome, I get it. The Amalekites came against Israel during the Exodus. They were just mentioned. We didn't get to set in that text or anything. They were just mentioned. And so the Amalekites come against Israel and God remembers the Amalekites and their sin. And so God comes, is about to come against the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. That's the command. Go utterly destroy, take out the Amalekites. But what does Saul do? He does not. He does not utterly destroy the Amalekites. That's no different than what we saw in Judges whenever Israel would not utterly destroy the Canaanites, as they were told to do over and over again. Here's what Saul does do. Saul spares some of the Amalekites, which he was not supposed to do. He captures their king. He doesn't kill him. He puts him in a cage like a bird, captures this king, does not destroy all the livestock, rather keeps the, lives, the best livestock so he can make a sacrifice to the Lord, he says. And then, and then he builds a monument to himself. That's like the exact opposite of everything that the Lord just called him to do. He was just supposed to utterly destroy. He literally does everything opposite of that. You guys have some of these people in your missional community, don't you? They come and ask you how they should respond. You tell them how to respond, and you're like, how did we get here? <laughs> how in the world did we end up? You know who they are, okay. But do you see Saul's presumption? Listen, his presumption, I'm the king, I can do what I want. How, do you see how that has led to like more and more and more decisions. You see that? It's brief, but hopefully you see that. That's the first thing I want you to see, just Saul's presumption quickly. And then now Samuel, the priest, if you've been with us, you know who Samuel is now. I want you to see next next in Samuel's position, okay? Samuel's position, Saul's presumption, Samuel's position. The text will explain itself. We're going to get into the text. I didn't have you stand a moment ago because I had a huge introduction for you. Here we go, Samuel's position, quite the opposite. 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 16, Kelly, if it's not up already. Just listen to this. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, okay? God said, I have, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was, listen to this, and Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Just pin that for a moment in your mind. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, this is so funny, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, what, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So literally, I just kind of picture King Saul like leaning up against a monument of himself, eating a pork steak off a styrofoam plate, you know, like, and he's like, bless the Lord, be blessed in the Lord. And Samuel's like, what? He's like, look at all that I've done. He's like, why do I hear sheep then? Like, what is happening Why are there oxen in the field? They should be, quote, utterly destroyed, right? And he's just like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And just, I don't know, that's the way I picture it in my head. Just kind of nomming on it, leaning against himself. Anyway, Saul said, let's keep reading. Saul said, Saul, King Saul, it's hard to keep these straight, Samuel and Saul. Saul, the king, said, they, Israel, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people, Israel, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. You ever get that text message from someone and just says, stop on it? Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he, that's Saul, said to Samuel, speak. Okay, there's so much that we could say about this. So much good and incredible things in here. Uh, But I want you to notice, what I want to focus on is I want you to see the difference here. I want you to just kind of think about this for a second. Samuel, priest Samuel, is already distraught. He's already upset with his with his king Saul, he spends the night in prayer before the Lord, just laying himself bare before the Lord. Samuel does not presume. He doesn't make an assumption about what God would have him do because he is the priest, but rather he goes into the presence of God and spends the whole night, right? Think about that, just inquiring before God, inquiring before the Lord, being reminded of his position and his calling and his purpose before the one true God of all creation. There's no presumption there. He seeks out the Lord in the midst of his being utterly distraught and angry and frustrated. Tell me, you don't know those feelings. And he goes before the Lord. Samuel's angry, and he cries out to the Lord, just puts himself out there. Let me ask you then, like, when is the last time that you just sat before the Lord and told him about your emotions? When's the last time you just sat in silence and you just wrote out, journaled out, or maybe just spoke out, like, God, I'm just angry. I'm mad, I'm frustrated, I'm anxious. Not just in your head while you're driving the car. I mean, nothing around you, you have nothing else going on, not while you're even drinking coffee, just sitting there. God, I'm frustrated. I'm mad at my boss. Can't stop arguing with my spouse. Can't find a spouse. I'm hurt. I don't even feel you anymore. Like, when's the last time, if ever, have you ever done that? Right, the big idea was the pres- presence is the antidote to presumption. Saul does not, or Samuel does not assume or presume, rather he pursues presence, seeks out the Lord in that moment. You see that? It is so subtle, yet it is so important for me. So, so for us, Saul, on the other hand, there's, there's not one time, listen, in three chapters that we've heard of Saul where he has sought the Lord. There's not one time where he's the king of all of Israel, went and sought to be present with the Lord God Almighty. He does not pursue holiness. He does not pursue godliness. He does not lay himself prostrate before the Lord and beg for the presence of God. Saul simply is trying to look a certain way, to be seen a certain way, not by God, but by the people. Can anyone relate? You care a little bit more about how people view you than you care about the way God views you. I can 100%... Relate. you ever act a certain way around certain people because you think you know what they're going to say or do? You ever find yourself doing that? You just act a certain way, speak a certain way, talk a certain way, do whatever a certain way because you think you know how they're going to respond to you. That's a presumption, isn't it? It's an assumption. The overarching problem with that is that you can never meet the expectations of everyone around you. You can't meet everyone's expectations. If you try, listen, if you try, it's going to leave you just continuing to present what's called a false self, a little social psychology for you today. You're going to continue to present a false self to that person. And what I mean by that is the false self is the person that you project on other people because of who you think they expect you to be. That's a presumption. Anyone in here? Anyone online? Maybe you can comment on that. And some will say, no, 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 bro, you don't get it. Like, I'm just a chameleon. So I just, I just I act a certain way around certain people. Here's the deal. You're not a chameleon. You're a human being. <laughs> chameleons are chameleons. That's a fact. Okay? You're calling yourself a chameleon, regardless of it being 2021, 20, does not make you a chameleon. You're still just a human being. And, and the reality is this. I put this in bold. So let me just read it for you. Uh, you're not a chameleon. The problem is you fought so hard to be who everyone else wants you to be that you've lost your true self. You've presented so much of a false self that you've lost your true self. And that true self is in there. And he or she wants to come out. And he or she wants to be heard. And he or she wants to like just once again express emotion and hobbies and what he or she loves to do, what he or she loves to participate in, what makes he or she laugh and cry and be sad and happy. How he or she wants to speak, like it's in there. And yet you try so hard to appease so many people, you've lost them. I get it because, uh, man, I personally experienced this during COVID and more specifically even during our our merge. And I talked a little bit about this many months ago, but I didn't talk about this part yet. I wasn't quite ready for that. And so I found myself, though, in the the course of that year, carrying a whole lot, caring a whole lot about what people thought about me that I didn't even know, a presumption. If I act a certain way, if I keep the, the way that I normally do things, people might get offended. People might get upset. People might get fill in the blank for whatever lie I was believing in that moment. So I had to present to a false self. And what I began to do for a year was I began to lessen my expectations for our church as a whole. Uh, I, I gave up little portions of my identity over the course of a year that led to really, really large portions of my identity s- seeming to not even exist anymore. Anyone else? And, and so I just kind of compromised in a few different ways. We've heard that word a lot throughout the text. And, and what the reality is, and here's what's scary. It was so subtle that it was, it's terrifying in hindsight. When you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't even recognize this person anymore. Who is this person? Like, for me, it was the guy that for seven straight years was like, God the Father has called us to storm the gates of hell with the passion of Christ. We don't care the cost. That's who that guy was. And he was starting to fade away just little by little, just little pieces of myself given away, so much of a false self given away that the true self could no longer come out. And then I got COVID. And then I got stuck in my bedroom for four days. You know what I did? I read the Bible for myself. And I prayed to God for myself, not to feed anyone else, just for myself. And I played a lot of Fortnite with Jeff's little boy. That's what I did. (laughs) I read, I read, I prayed, and I played Fortnite. He called me, I just put on speakerphone, playing with Max, okay? And one night at 4 a.m., I had these excruciating back pains for like two or three days. I don't know what everyone's symptoms were. Mine were just really terrible, really, really bad back aches. At 4 a.m., I had really bad back aches, and I felt the Lord, as I was reading the Old Testament, just reading for myself, the Lord very sweetly said to me, when did you become accommodating? And that word is set heavy in our staff and with leaders now lately. When did you become, when did I call you to become accommodating? And I just had to repent. Because in that moment, I saw all the little aspects of myself I had given away out of a, based off a presumption That someone might get upset someone might feel a certain way someone might do something and and, and here's the deal here's the beauty of this in upon repenting the lord has restored literally without fail every single thing that i surrendered for a year and a half god has given back to me but i want you to know it has taken almost as long for him to give it back as it took for me to give it away it is a slow process you can't microwave this for sure Week by week, though, listen, God is continuing to bring me back. Like, I'm in this right now, okay? Practitioner. Week by week, God is just bringing me back more and more and more into who I once was and even better, an even better version of who I was a year and a half ago. You see, Saul had also become accommodating. Many of you have become accommodating as well, yeah? Yeah. Saul becomes accommodating, does not go before the Lord. Samuel, the priest, on the other hand, before he moves, before he speaks, he goes into the presence of God. Comes into his presence for himself, not for everyone else, but for himself. I had lost that presence, and I believe many people in our church have also lost the presence as well. Stopped entering into the presence. Listen, when you fail to lose, or when you lose presence, you will fall prey to presumption. You'll just think you know what the Lord has for you. You'll lose your true self, and you'll begin to kind of display this false self over and over and over again. Let's keep reading. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 20. Check this out. This sits so heavy with me. And Samuel said, 17 through 20, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Right? Though you see yourself very, very small, are you not the the Lord God's anointed king? Though you see yourself so tiny, are you not the one that's responsible? Like you are the king, the first king of Israel. And yet you see yourself so tiny, like Saul had forgotten who he was or he maybe never even accepted who he was. Like he he falls for Samuel then pastoring this man, right? He's, He's bitter, he's frustrated, he's angry, but he sought out the Lord so he can come to a position here where he can literally priest this king. And so in a very priestly way, he says, do you not know your position? Do you not know that you're the anointed? Do you not know that you share in the Imago Dei like you have the image of God upon you and yet you're submitting yourself to all these people? Keep reading. The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have. Listen to what he says. He does not even repent or anything. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekite, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Who's it about in this scenario? It's all about him. Right? I have done this. I have done this. I have done this. Samuel will not confess what he has actually done. His presumptions have become blinding to him. Forgot, forgets his position and his calling. And then listen how Samuel responds. We'll keep reading 15 through 20, uh, 22 through, through 26. And Samuel said this, has the Lord, listen to this, this is what struck me. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? There's only one way to hear the voice of the Lord, church. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to what? Listen, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sin of divination, and listen here, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. All right, Saul tried to just do enough. Saul wanted to do, King Saul just wanted to do enough to appease people, just do enough to appease uh, God. He just kind of did the the status quo, right? He did what he thought was right based off a presumption. I am the king. The people should see me a certain way, not considering the way God saw him, but did just enough to kind of appease God and appease the people. The reality is this. You can't live that life. Mm -hmm. You can't live a life of appeasing people, being accommodating, sharing only a false self and not actually being yourself. You can most certainly try to do that, but you're going to be pulled in so many different directions, it's going to literally feel like you can no longer breathe. Like you're going to suffocate under the weight of trying to make everyone around you happy that you cannot make happy. And here's what happens. Here's how you know. How do I know if that's me? I mean, I just like to be, you know, I just want to be, I don't think accommodating is that bad. I view it kind of as a positive thing, right? How do I know if that's me? Here's how you know. You're going to start feeling entitled to something or you already feel entitled to something. And what I mean by that specifically, and look, this is, I'm talking from experience, Okay. From experience, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna say things like, I do all these things, man. I serve my kids, I serve my spouse, I serve my friends, I work, I serve the church. Can't someone just fill in the blank for me? Can't somebody just do something for me? Can't somebody just reach out to me? Can't somebody just come and serve Me, does does no one see that I'm drowning over here? All the things that I have going on and yet no one is looking at me. No one is praising me. No one's giving me glory. No one's celebrating my hard work. Can't somebody just do this? And then it turns into this. Well, I'm just gonna stop doing it all. I'm just gonna stop. I'm gonna pull away from people. I'm gonna pull away from stuff. I'm gonna pull away from things. I'm just gonna stay to myself. I'm just gonna, and then before you can even finish that thought, here's what happens. And here's how you really, really know. Shame and guilt begin to set in because you immediately think, well, if I don't do it, then who will? A presumption. That's a presumption. If I don't do it, then no one else will do it. If I don't make the homeroom cookies, no one's ever gonna make the homeroom cookies. You don't even make homeroom cookies. You just buy them from Schnucks and put them in a container (laughs) because you're so rushed because you're trying to be accommodating to everyone else. But what do you think? You think, what, if I don't do it, No one else will do it. I'm the only one that can fill in the blank. That is a presumption. I was talking with a pastor last week, and he said, sometimes I just feel like I'm not needed. And I said, you're not. You're not needed, and neither am I. The reality is I die tomorrow, they hire a new lead pastor. You are replaceable, is what I told them that hit as heavy for him as you might imagine in his moment of, woe is me. Mm -hmm. You are replaceable, bro. That's what I told him. Let me just set you free from some church. No one needs you to know everything, to be everywhere, and to be all providing. No one. That's Jesus' responsibility. That's Jesus' responsibility, man. No one needs you. I'll say it again. No one needs you to know everything, to be everywhere, and to be all providing. The Lord has that covered completely. And first and foremost, for you. Not so that you have to go do those things for everyone else. And here's the deal. I love you enough to say this. I'm going to say it directly to your eye contact because I love you. You are replaceable. You're replaceable, and so are you. And in case you got off the hook Facebook, you're replaceable as well. No one needs you that badly that you have to be God for them. People need you, sure. Don't hear me say something I'm not. No one needs you to be the Lord for them. Do not let your presumption of what other people might think about you lead you to running yourself ragged over and over and over again. Someone else can go to Schnucks and buy the cookies and put them in a different container for you, okay? Someone else will do that job if you don't do that job, believe it or not, okay? Okay? I used to, we used to, have a, uh, we used to have a boy that lived with us and he's a little bit more hood than I am. And he used to say, Corey, y'all doing too much? Talking to me and Andrew. He said, hey, Core, y'all doing too much. Hey, hey, y'all doing too much. Look at me. Some of y'all doing too much, man. <laughs> COVID lifted up, calendar full. Pfft, you got more colors than the rainbow on that calendar right now. You have so much going on right now. You don't know up from down. Look, you don't have to be everywhere all-knowing and all-powerful. The Lord will do that. You can say no to some things. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to give you some practical application based off this idea of being present with the Lord. Okay, Practical application. I don't ever do this. These are things that I specifically do, that Corey does, Pastor Corey does. And I believe that they are going to help you. Some of them, let me be clear so I don't feel like a hypocrite. Some of them I've just been reminded of in the last couple months. Many of them I did for a very, very long season of my life until about a year and a half ago, whenever COVID hit. Here's the first thing you need to do, practical application. You gotta identify the season. Listen, you gotta identify the season that you're in. And what I mean by that is like, you gotta name it. You gotta name the season. When you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling burdened, when you're feeling heavy, when you're feeling a little erratic and out of control, you're feeling too busy, you just need to name it. Like, hey, I'm in a season right now that is difficult for me and my family. I cannot hang out with you the next couple weeks because my family needs time together. I need time in the evening because that is just as productive as doing anything else. More so productive than the majority of what you're filling your evenings with, by the way. You just need to identify the season. You gotta name the season. And so let me give you a name for it. I'm gonna let you help you name the season. When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel burdened, when you feel out of control, here's the season that I want you to call it. I want you to call it this The dark night of the soul. I want you to call it the dark night of the soul. I'm not clever enough to make that up. It's from 500 plus years ago. There's an old theologian named John of the Cross. He's from Spain, about the 1500s or so. He speaks directly to this reality, this feeling of emptiness, or this feeling of loss, of true self, because we present a false self so often we forgot effectively who we are. And he calls it the dark night of The soul, whenever nothing is appeasing, nothing feels good anymore, you're just doing just to do. And he says this I think we have this quote for you. Hopefully, we could get it fit in there. Oh, yes, here we go. It's written a little small, but you can listen to me and reference the screen. He says this At a certain point in the spiritual journey, God will draw a person from the beginning stage, that's like of their salvation, new in the faith, will draw a person from the beginning stage to a more advanced stage. At this stage, the person will begin to engage in religious exercises and grow deeper in the spiritual life. You're kind of excited about Jesus, right? Such souls will likely experience what is called, though, the dark night of the soul. The dark night is when those persons lose all the pleasure they once experienced in their devotional life. This happens because God wants to purify them and move them on to greater heights. He will remove, listen, He will remove previous consolation, that is previous feel good emotions from the soul in order to teach the soul virtue and prevent it from developing a vice. And so what he's saying there is this, there are moments, there are seasons in your life where things that once you found pleasure in no longer are pleasing because God wants to mature you He wants to lead you away from just doing things all the time to make yourself feel a certain way based off how people look at you or based off how God looks at you. And so God will actually think about This is scary. God will actually remove all of the positive feelings so that the very religious works or the good deeds that you do no longer are appealing to you. Like he will leave you in have you guys ever felt that before? You go to read, and you're like, I'm just not getting anything. And you go to pray, and you're like, I don't feel like God is present. And you go to serve, and you're like, it just doesn't make me happy anymore. Anyone? Yeah. I'm, the only, okay, I'm the only one, okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the season our church is in across the board. That's why I'm talking about it. The dark night of the soul. And here's the deal. The point of it is not to leave you alienated. It's to leave you alienated long enough that you start to fight for presence with Jesus, not with anyone else. It might be what Paul means when he says you've got to move from spiritual milk to meat. Right? What once was so appeasing to you is not. Now you've got to fight for it. Right? A baby doesn't have to fight for that bottle. It just cries, gets the bottle. But man, you want to make a good pork steak. It takes some time, doesn't it? Some seasoning. God will remove the virtue, the good thing that once consoled you, so that thing does not become a vice and kill you. If you're sitting in the dark night of the soul, you need to thank the Lord find your presence in there. Some of you have been doing so much for so long for so many other people, you have forgotten what it's like to just do something for the Lord. Mm. Trying to appease everyone, be all places at all times and all powerful. You don't have to do that. No one has to do that in this room. Jesus will do that for us. I personally hit the dark night of the soul about every four months, about every quarter. My wife downplays it. She calls it my menstrual cycle, okay? So there's that. My <laughs> menstrual cycle, that's what I said, Yeah. But I'll tell you what, in that moment, whenever she's downplaying my emotions, man, I do, I feel like I'm crying out, no one's paying attention. My anxiety begins to peak, my mind begins to race and race and race. I can't sleep at night, I wake up, I stay up for all hours of the night, I'm contemplating, I'm thinking, right? And thinking about nothing. It's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. Just a treadmill in there. Spinning, 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 it's terrible. I get cramps, it's a bad time for me, you know? (laughs) So what do we do? What do we do once we identify it? Okay, we gotta identify it. Here's what I want you to do starting tomorrow morning. It's for real. And you online too. Check this out. I want you to take five. This is why you need a pen. You need to write this in the comments if you're watching online. Help the people out online. I want you to take five minutes to surrender your day every day before you do anything. Listen, before you do anything, before you make coffee, before you do anything, before the kids are out of bed, most certainly. You ain't taking five when kids are out of the bed. You hear me? Before you do anything, take five. And here's what I want you to do. Pen, paper, Jesus. That's it, pen, paper, and Jesus. And I want you to do, say three things. I want you to say, Jesus, I surrender my calendar. Jesus, I surrender to you my conversations. Jesus, everything is negotiable. You can have everything. Five minutes, and just say it. No Bible out yet. No nothing. Before you do your quiet time, if you do quiet time in the morning, take five minutes silence. Set a timer so your American mind can find some rest, and you know when you're going to be done. And then also ask yourself three questions, three quick questions. I'm having you take notes. Write this down online too. I want you to write this down. How do I feel today? How do I feel today? Why do I feel like this? How did I feel yesterday? And just set with your emotions for a minute. Remember, the priest Samuel was angry before the Lord. He has emotions out before the Lord. So we're trying to do take five every day. I've been doing this every day for quite some time. It helps us to reconnect. And here's the, the deal. At the end of the day, what you're gonna see is a couple things. One, this isn't really even about you. It's about just being present with Jesus. And the five minutes that you're already worried about taking because you don't wanna wake up five minutes earlier than you have to, that five minutes becomes 10 minutes. And that 10 minutes becomes 15 minutes. And that 15 becomes 20. And all of a sudden, you feel so connected that you're like, I don't even wanna stop being here anymore. That's presence. That's presence. Here's the reality, though, too. Harsh reality, you might feel worse for a season because you've set aside so much of that darkness and not engaged it that it might hit you like a tidal wave. I'm gonna encourage you to just stay in the wave. Stay and be present, all right? Next thing I want you to do is this. Identify what is urgent versus important. What is urgent versus important? Well, pastor, how do I know? I feel like everything's urgent. That's because you're doing too much, (laughs) Everything feels urgent whenever you feel like you have to do everything for everybody all the time. Everything feels urgent. How do you know? How do you know what's urgent versus important? Here's how I do it. If it can wait 24 hours and no one's going to die, it's not urgent. If it can wait 24 hours and you know the house isn't going to burn down, your kids are going to be safe, and no one's going to die, it's not urgent, okay? It might be important, but you can wait 24 hours. You know, I get phone calls and text messages all the time for people to call me back and I need you to call right now. I want to talk right now. I need to do this right now. And I will intentionally wait 24 hours to call them back just to teach them some emotional intelligence. Right? I'm not, listen, I'm safe for here too. You're not responsible for other people's emotional intelligence. But you can model good emotional intelligence for them. Right? So if it's not gonna die, it can wait 24. And literally write a column, urgent versus important. Urgent versus important. What feels urgent to me right now? What's bringing me anxiety that I feel like I need to touch right now in this moment? And then right now, what's important? What can wait but needs to get done? Some things need to get done, but they don't need to get done right now. The problem is you're so addicted to your cell phone, you're used to just pulling your phone out at the first thought of something. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Put your phone away somewhere for a little while. And things will start to feel less urgent, but they will feel more important. Fourth thing is this, you're not busy, you're limited. This is a new one for me, right? The majority of people that I know in my life, they don't like telling people I'm busy, or they don't like to look as if they're too busy because that feels like alienating, like you're going to push someone away if you say, hey, I'm busy. So here's the deal, you're not busy, church, you're just limited. Everyone is busy. People rarely take the time to see they're just limited, And so what I mean by that is this. If someone's asking you to do something, maybe maybe it's me asking you to serve on a team here at the church. I ask everyone to do everything all the time, don't I? That's a spiritual gift, delegation. I got it, okay? (laughs) Lord gave it to me. That's healthy things grow. I ask people to do stuff all the time. Here's what you can say to me, though. You can say no. You can say no. I am limited this week. I'm limited for the next quarter. I'm trying to be intentional with my family. Now, if you're just saying no to because you're in sin, that's one thing. But if you say, hey, I don't want you to think I'm too busy. I'm just limited on my capacity for time. I'm limited on the resources that I'm able to give this week. I'm limited on this, right? It, it kind of has a little bit of fluff to it. It feels a little bit nicer, doesn't it? Listen, you're limited. It's okay to be limited because you're finite. You're not Infinite. When the school board calls you because you're the one that does everything all the time for all the people in all the classrooms and all the teachers, here's what you need to say. I can do that, but I'm limited on time right now. Hit Hit me in the next semester, the next quarter. I am limited. Everyone is busy. Not everyone recognizes their limits. You have to recognize your limits, church or you are going to die trying to appease everyone else. So identify this season. Take five minutes to be with Jesus. Identify what is urgent versus important. And lastly, know your limits. You're not just busy, you are limited. As for the gospel now, the gospel application, stand with me and Jeff will come back up if he's around. and Let me finish this thing out with the gospel. You can stand up with me, it's okay. I'll be more clear, sorry. Stand with me as we talk to the gospel, prepare our hearts for communion. Samuel the priest specifically said to Saul that it is better to listen to the voice of the Lord than to make any sacrifice. He said it's it's better to listen to the voice of the Lord than to make any sacrifice. Here's what's incredible about that. Look, Samuel said that before Jesus even went to the cross. Right before he knew Jesus was gonna go to the cross, he is speaking of the reality that there is a sacrifice that is coming that is going to be far better than any sacrifice we could ever make for any person ever for the rest of our lives and he's referencing without referencing he's referencing the cross of christ and he's referencing this is there's this true reality where there is a true king of kings That is going to be captured in public, not out of ignorance, not because of some rash vow or some ridiculous storming of the gates, right, that happens by King Saul, but rather there's this true king of the kings that's going to be captured in a very public way. That there is a, a king that's going to come, and he's not going to make a rash vow at all, man. He's going to make the most incredible, promising vow for life eternal that we could ever imagine that there's this one true king that's gonna come and he's not gonna just rule and reign over Israel in perfection, but he's gonna rule and reign over every single person. And it's that king who's not gonna care at all about what the people think about him. Listen, Jesus didn't care at all about what the people thought about him. He had one person in mind with every single decision he made, and that was the, the personhood of his father. He looked at his father and he said, this is what you're calling me to do. Think about all the people that Jesus made met. Could you even stomach it? Think about it. He made a political elite mad. He made poor people mad. He made rich folks mad. He made every different cultural, ethnicity, diversity. He was was diverse in who displeased, wasn't he? He Yet his eyes transfixed on his father. He says, Is there another way? As he's praying, we're in the garden, seeking the presence of his dad. He said, Is there another way? And the father says, Only your sacrifice is enough. That's the gospel. There's only one sacrifice that's enough, that's sufficient, and that's Jesus. It's not ours. So as we enter into communion with this in mind, let's be reminded of his sacrifice for us. First Corinthians says this as we read every week. It says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's Jesus sitting at this table, right? With allegedly his best friends. One of them is about to betray him. Think about that as a form of sacrifice Knowing that your best mate is going to betray you, yet you're having a meal. And not only does he betray you after a meal, but he betrays you with a kiss. That's sacrifice. Jesus has sacrificed in every single way we could ever imagine. Not so that we could kill ourselves trying to appease everyone and be accommodating. He was the opposite of accommodating so that he could be accepting. It you know would I mean he was the opposite of accommodating so he could be accepting of us right in our flaws and our weaknesses and our poor time management and our wanting to be god and king and ruler over everything in our lives and our calendar jesus dies so we could look to him and find a great deal of hope and faith and promise so let's point other people to him amen you guys can feast when you want